First Peter chapter 5, verse number 1 begins this way. Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So, a couple weeks ago, we uh, talked about submission, and, and then Kathy didn't come back the week after, but... Uh, th- this week I'm going to have to preach on preachers and what preachers ought to do right. So she came back this week, amen. But uh, <clears throat> we have looked for the past few weeks at different aspects of our lives as uh, believers. Uh, you know, let me say this just by way of introduction, uh, that, you know, when I got saved, I didn't know everything it was going to mean and everything it was going to be. Uh, if I could have known all that God would have done for me, it wouldn't have dissuaded me from being saved. Maybe if I'd only looked at the battles to be fought, maybe that would have mattered. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when I got saved, I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I needed to be saved, and I knew Christ had died for me, and I knew He'd saved me if I'd trust in Him. And it was really that simple. I didn't want to die and go to hell, and so I called upon the only one that could keep me from dying and going to hell. He forgave me, and He saved me. One of the things that you'll find as you live the Christian life, and particularly as you study the Word of God, is that a lot more happened when you got born again than you knew was happening. And uh, a lot of things were, were uh, the die was cast, so to speak, about certain things in our lives. And uh, the, we, we entered a warfare, we entered a family, we entered a church, we entered a warfare, we entered a lot of things when we got born again. And so we've looked at different avenues and aspects of the, the Christian life. We looked at our saved life, how we got saved, what it means to, to be saved. And we looked at our uh, separated life. How should we live in light of the fact that we have been saved? Uh, something as big as God moves into your life, it's going to change you. You're going to be different, not just different than what you used to be, but different than what you would have been and different than those that are around you. I've shared this before, that, you know, when I saved, I was 10 years old when I was saved, and uh, there was a difference. There was an immediate, marked, noticeable difference. My parents could see it. Other people could see it in my life. But, you know, there's no doubt that it probably wasn't as dramatic a change as it is in the lives of so many people. But, you know, God changed the course of my life. And most certainly He did change in that moment who and what I was. But now I look at young people that I grew up around that had the same benefits that I had, raised in good homes, but they rejected Christ and their life is a mess now. And uh, I, I don't mean that in pride. You know, I could be in the ditch tomorrow. I, I'm aware of that, but for the grace of God go I. But I think sometimes with young people that are saved at a young age, we spend so much time talking about where we used to be and where we are, that sometimes they don't know what that means. And sometimes uh, they, they don't identify with that when the reality for them is where they are versus where they could be on that given day. So certainly God changed the directory and or the trajectory of, of our lives. Then we talked about our submissive life and uh, how we are to cope with and how we are to behave towards authority. 
in our life. You know, that's a part of it. That's not a popular message today. Uh, we live in a day where, I mean, it, you know, Christians are always ready to just grab their, their torches and pitchforks and run off and topple the government. And, and, you know, I'm disgusted with the way government runs, just like everybody else is. But we need to let the Word of God be our compass. And we need to do what God would have us to do. Uh, you know, I hate to say this. I, I believe that God has blessed our country, don't you? I believe He has blessed our country. Uh, but I believe He has blessed our country because our country has honored Him. You say, well, our country, why isn't it being blessed now? Well, we're not honoring Him. And uh, we're going to have to really start thinking in this way. We're going to have to start recognizing we're citizens of heaven before we're ever citizens of this great country that we're a part of. And so... You know, Peter talks about that, our submissive life. Last week we talked about our suffering life and what it means to suffer and to experience suffering. But we've titled chapter number 5 in the study of it simply our spiritual life. For it deals with the day-to-day nourishment, feeding, fellowship, and warfare that comprises uh, the daily life of a Christian. You know, We all have those red-letter days, those days when big things happen. Most of us could acknowledge that that's not every day. In fact, most of life, the only time you serve God is when it is exciting. You're not going to serve God very much. Because the reality is that, uh, you know, our our spiritual life is no different than our physical life. Uh, That's like saying, well, I only go to work on the days that I enjoy it. (laughs) Some of you all never work, amen? You know, uh, I mean, the the reality, yeah, some of y'all just quit working because you got tired of it. But the the reality is that uh, there are days that are mundane. There are days that are difficult. There are days when it's not it's not very glor- glorified and it's not very romanticized. But you go about and you do it out of faithfulness and out of duty, and you do it because the one that was faithful to you and that is faithful to you. And so it's these matters that Peter is sort of dealing with. And He's gone through just about every facet of life and told folks how to behave. He's told masters how to behave. He's told slaves how to behave. He's told uh, husbands how to behave. He's told wives how to behave. He's told children how they ought to behave. I mean, he's told everybody in every facet of life how they ought to behave. And I guess Peter said, well, I guess I ought to say a little bit about how pastors ought to behave. Amen? And so he begins with some rules for shepherds. It's interesting that he denotes and and describes the pastor as being a shepherd. He calls them elders in verse number 1, and he speaks of their spiritual maturity that they need. Uh, You know, most of you know that I was 22 years old when I started to pastor. Uh, I, I have grown in spiritual maturity. I hope I have anyways. I like to believe that I have. I hope that I've grown in pastoral maturity uh, since that time because... The pastor, the elder, the bishop, the overseer is called to be such a person that could be denoted as an elder. Uh, My pastor used to say that the term elder just described those that were elderly. And there weren't a lot of things I disagreed with my preacher on. uh, Just a handful, but that was one of them. I I do know that that uh, Greek word does speak of someone that is aged. But it's also abundantly clear to me as I read the Word of God that it's also used in an official capacity to describe those that have been given the oversight in ministry. Now, I, you know, I know there's some churches run around there, everybody's an elder. You know, you know churches like that. I mean, everybody, elder so-and-so and elder so-and-so and elder so-and-so, and they throw that title around. I believe that, that Peter is distinctly talking, first off, about, about the pastor when he describes an elder. He is speaking about the man that has been given the oversight that has been ordained of God to pastor that local body. 
And then I think he's also speaking of those that undergird him and those that are in positions of authority and uh, positions of responsibility. And he turns his attention to them and says a word about them. And he says this, The elders which are among you I exhort. To exhort means to build up, to edify, to command, but also to encourage. He says, Who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now, why did Peter say this? Well, there's two things of importance, I think, as we read that worth noting. One is to notice what he did not say. He said, who also, who am also an elder. He did not say, I am the sovereign elder, or the supreme elder, or the holy elder, or the the father elder. But he describes himself as being on the same tier and the same standing as the other elders that were present there in the church at Babylon that he was speaking to. I think that's worth noting uh, for this simple reason, that the whole Roman Catholic Church has been built upon the fallacy that Peter was the first pope, the first sovereign pontiff, and uh, that uh, the, the uh, apostolic succession and the pontifical succession all stems from him and his ministry. And there's a thousand ways we could discount that. But let's just let Peter's words uh, do the discounting. He says, I am also an elder. He does not say, I am the elder or the greatest elder. In fact, he's going to say something before it's all said and done or, or uh, about the chief shepherd, or he has already said it, the chief shepherd, the bishop of your souls. He describes Christ as being the uh, foundation of the New Testament church, but he speaks of himself on common ground, equal ground with the other elders. Sort of like uh, Mary, you know, people like to call Mary the Virgin Mary. I'm aware that Mary was a virgin when she uh, was conceived of the Holy Ghost and, and was conceived with Christ, but she was not a perpetual virgin. The The Bible records for us that she went on to bear other children, uh, and, and those children that she bore, she bore to Joseph. Uh, but, you know, the angel himself said to Mary, said, Blessed art thou among women, among women. Did not say above other women, said among women. And so this fallacy of, of uh, Mary being a perpetual virgin, being elevated to a place of deity, and Peter being the uh, grand and sovereign supreme pontiff and, and pope, and him being the foundation of the church at Rome, is categorically unscriptural. There is no Bible foundation for that whatsoever, and Peter's own words speak to that. But notice then the second thing that he speaks of. He speaks of one that does have experience, because he says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. It's interesting that he calls himself a partaker of that glory. I believe that Peter has in his mind the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, when he uh, stood up there and, and was engulfed by the the glowing, transfigured face of the Son of God. And what he is denoting to them as he is about to encourage and exhort these pastors is he is saying, I want you to understand I'm an elder just like you. One of the things that keeps me going is I have witnessed Christ's suffering. I've seen him beaten, I've seen him bloodied, I've seen him bruised, I've seen him crucified, but also I have partook in his glory And I can see that eternity always pays good dividends that for all the suffering he experienced, he was already glorified and there's a, there's a further glory to come, a glory that shall be revealed. And he uses this as a point of encouragement to those pastors that are around. Now, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because as far as I know, I'm the only pastor in the room, but, uh, you know, just suffice it to say this, that that'll keep you going sometimes when things are tough. 
to know that Christ has already suffered, but to know that He also has been glorified, and to know that we are a partaker. Inasmuch we're a partaker of those sufferings, we're also a partaker of that glory that shall be revealed. He speaks of their spiritual maturity. He speaks of their spiritual ministry in verse number 2. He says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And he speaks first off about the pastor's primary responsibility. Now, there are a lot of things that go into pastor. You know, uh, you spend time in homes, you spend time in, in, in hospitals, you, you pray with those that are dying, you rejoice with those that are that are having children. I mean, you spend a lot of times, there's a lot, I've kind of joked with folks that, you know, pastoring is about 90, 98% paperwork. Amen? Because you do a lot of paperwork when you're a pastor, just notes and, and, and material and curriculum and, and uh, logistical things. You do a lot of things, but there's one chief and primary responsibility of the pastor, and that is to feed the flock of God. If he fails in feeding the flock of God, he has failed in his primary responsibility. It's part of the reason... <laughs> that we put such an emphasis on preaching. We don't, listen, I don't put an emphasis on preaching because I'm a preacher. <laughs> amen? All I'm doing is making more work for myself. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, that you know, I, that's not why we put an emphasis on, on preaching. We don't put an emphasis on preaching because we dislike music. We love music around here. I believe music is a key and vital part of the New Testament church, and it is scriptural. I believe fellowship is important. I, you know, we, we go out of our way to make sure there's time. Uh, you know, uh, listen, next to, to the, the pastor and missions, we spend more money on food than anything else around here. And part of the reason for that is to provide opportunities for fellowship. Fellowship is important. But the preeminent thing in the local church is the preaching of the Word of God, both in the life and ministry of the pastor and in the ministries that touch and affect the lives of the people. He's to feed the flock of God. You think about the responsibility of a shepherd, you know, uh, and the shepherd might do a lot of things. I mean, you know, he, he can keep the wolves away, but if he lets them starve to death, it don't matter. He, he can tend to their wool and he can, you know, he can keep it, keep it clean and keep the mites and the parasites away. He can look to their health and make sure that they are, are healthy, but if they starve to death, nothing else matters. The, the shepherd's primary responsibility is to provide pasture for the sheep that are under his watch care. And that's really what he does. He travels all over, sometimes to familiar places, sometimes to new places, just trying to take his sheep somewhere that they can be fed. That's his primary responsibility. And I think we ought to keep it that way around the house of God. I, you know, I know a lot of churches that, that have everything right, but their people are weak and anemic because there's never any preaching of the Word of God. And it's not that the preaching that exists is bad or wrong or undoctrinal. It's just there ain't enough of it. They don't study the Word of God. They don't preach the Word of God. They don't, you know, learn the Word of God. We were, me and Brother Kerry were talking. Um, we went out to eat with some folks on Sunday, and we were sharing with them kind of our testimonies. And this was what he said. Now, this is what he said. This isn't my words. But he said this. He said, you know, I grew up in a Sunday morning only church. That's what he said. He said, I grew up in a little country church where they only had church on Sunday mornings. That was the only time. All that the preacher ever preached was salvation messages. John 3, you know, John 14, that was all that he ever preached on. And uh, he said, I got saved at 13 years old. And he said, and then that was it. He said, I thought I was all right. You know, he said, I, I thought I was okay. We'd go to church that one time a week, Sunday morning, that'd be it. And then we'd go home. And He said, I thought I was okay. I had my seat to heaven. And uh, then he described a dark period in his life where he got away from the Lord and 
one of the things that brought him out of that, by his description, by his definition, he said that uh, when he moved back to Knoxville, he started going back to Tabernacle, my, you know, where I grew up, and and get under the preaching of the Word of God. And that was one of the things that drew him out of that darkness that he had been in. You know, no doubt, his church that he grew up in, I've been to that church. It's fine people, kind people, generous people. No doubt their doctrine is is fairly correct. You know, I won't say completely correct, but fairly correct. They're not bad people. But there's just not enough food there to feed a person and help them to grow and to be healthy and to develop like they ought to. His first ministry above anything else is to feed the flock of God. Uh, one of the things I appreciate as a pastor is is the privilege to be able to be full-time. Let me tell you why. Because that means that the food that's prepared for you every week doesn't have to suffer when other things come about. Uh, you know, the we didn't do, when back when I used to work, and, and uh, you know, there was a time when we didn't have the financial needs and demands that we have now, and there was a time when I was bivocational, and, and, you know, we still survived as a church. I mean, I was at every funeral. I was at the hospitals. I was at, I don't really remember any times when somebody called, said, oh, preacher, somebody's died. And I said, well, I'm working. I'm sorry. I can't be there. You know, we still survived. But things like we're doing tonight, they didn't go on. And part of the reason for that is one time for it. Between working, between trying to just get the three sermons a week together and being at the funerals and being at the, the nursing homes and being at those places, just all you could do just to hold things together. And one of the great privileges I have in being able to be a full-time pastor is that there is time for things like this tonight. A lot of a lot of hours went into these lessons. A lot of time went into these lessons. And I don't say that to try to garner your pity. I just say that to say that we put an emphasis on preaching. And one of the great blessings in my life is to to have the liberty to pursue that and to feed the flock of God. It's never ill-spent time or money if we invest in the preaching of the Word of God and the growing of Christians and the learning of the Word of God. And so he, he describes their spiritual ministry, he describes their spiritual motivation at the end of verse number 2. He says this, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now let me say this, I've heard a lot of preachers, they really like it where it says taking the oversight, you know. And uh, they think, man, that you know, that you, you can do anything you want, you can be real tough, and this and that. You know what that literally means? It means taking the responsibility. That's what it means, taking the responsibility. And uh, I'll tell you this, anybody that pastors for any length of time, if they, if they think that it's you know just a stroll in the park, uh, and they try to take the oversight, not knowing what they're getting into, buddy, they'll give that oversight back in a hurry. <laughs> because it is a great and grand responsibility. And how does Peter say we are to do that? And he describes a couple things here. Uh, in fact, he gives two good motivations and two bad motivations. He says, not by constraint. What does that mean? Not because you have to. Not because you have to. Uh, there is great battle with the flesh sometimes uh, as a pastor because there's times when you, you, there, you do things that, that you have to do. But here's the difference. On your public job, as you go into work, it's good enough. As long as you get the job done, it don't really matter why you're doing it. Now, you ought to do everything as under the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. But as far as how your boss is concerned and how the work, I mean, as long as the work is done, then that's enough. But if a pastor don't find some better motivation than just because he has to, then he's not going to do it very long. There are some things you have to do when you're the pastor. But we ought not do those things because we have to. But what does he say? But willingly, willingly. That same Greek word is used when John talks about those that, that sin willfully after they have the knowledge of the truth. 
And uh, it describes someone that knows what it entails and pursues it anyway. And that's how the pastor is to pastor. Knows what it entails and pursues it willingly. How can he do that? Well, notice the next two things. It says, not for filthy lucre. Now, what does filthy lucre mean? It means not for money, not for the paycheck that it entails and involves. That's not why you ought to do it. Uh, you know, it's always funny. Folks think you'll get rich. And I'm, I, the, the church is very good to me. I'm very well took care of. In fact, they, they gave me a raise uh, not this past Sunday night, Sunday night before, and uh, very sensitive to the needs of my family. Uh, but most pastors are not as blessed in that respect. Most pastors are not as fortunate in that way. And uh, I remember hearing Brother Brian McBride, he was preaching one time, and he told stories. He said he was up and he was preaching. He was, uh, you know, preaching in a big way and everything. And he said there was a young man back that was sitting a few rows back, and, you know, he's white-knuckled, holding on to the bench and everything. said that after the sermon was done, that uh, Preacher McBride was standing at the back door, and people was coming by and shaking his hand. And said that young man came by, and he said, Yeah, preacher, it's easy for you to say just to quit and go ahead and, and, and start preaching. He said, but I drive a truck and I make a good living. And I can't just quit and go into the ministry and live off of $25,000 a year. And uh, Preacher McBride said, I didn't tell him that. I didn't tell him. He said, somebody told him he needed to do that. But I didn't tell him that. The Holy Ghost told him he needed to do that. But Preacher McBride said, I didn't have the heart to tell him that it'd be years before he'd make 25000 a year. <laughs> you know, most pastors uh, struggle. And I'm very blessed in that our church takes good care of us. But there is even a pitfall there that you do it for the paycheck. That's not a right reason to pastor. That's not why we do what we do. And uh, most pastors don't have that temptation because they don't get much of a paycheck. Those of us that are blessed and well taken care of, we need to guard our hearts that we're doing it for the right reason, not for the paycheck that is involved. But he gives a, a, a good reason. He says, but of a ready mind. Of a ready mind. What does he mean when he says, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind? He means uh, with a mind that is prepared for whatever may come down the path. Not because things are going good, not because the paycheck's there, but because you're ready to serve God in whatever condition and in whatever situation you might be in. He speaks of their spiritual motivation. He speaks about their spiritual manner in verse number 3. He says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Now, most of us have met preachers this way. I've met preachers this way. And God forgive me, I may have been this way at times. Uh, I may have been guilty of this. But, you know, I mean, some folks, uh, you know, they, they come in and they're the new sheriff in town, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I found this to be true. People that love God are willing to be pastored. Let me say that again, okay. I really want you to get that. People that love God are willing to be pastored. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of preachers got a real ego problem. And it's not really about what is best and edifying for their people. It's about the fact that their authority, quote-unquote, has been challenged. That's a hard road to walk. I found if you'll love God's people, and if you'll let God's people love you, some preachers, they're very hard to love, and I'm probably one of them at many times. But if you'll let God's people love you, and if you'll love them, and if you'll just lead them, they'll follow. And those that won't follow won't be driven either. There are some that they're not going to follow, but they won't be driven either. God did not call us to drive the flock of God. He called us to lead the flock of God. And how are we to do that? Not lording over God's heritage. Not not acting like you're the big boss in town and everybody's going to have to do what you say. Now, there's times when spiritual or when pastoral authority must be exercised and God gives grace and strength for those times. But those are not often. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. Or maybe it's my experience because I've got a wonderful church and they're very good to me and they support me very, very well. 
I hear horror stories from other pastors, you know. But I, I found this, that a lot of times those guys that just run around picking fights all the time, looking for a fight, they find a fight. You know, most of the time, if you'll be easy to be entreated, if if you'll be kind, if you'll be gentle with people, because that's how a shepherd has to be. He has to be willing to 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 uh, get the flock in line, so to speak, if the time comes. But most of the time, that's not how that they're led. Most of the time, he can gently lead them, and they will follow if he'll go. And that's what it says, being an example to the flock. In other words, the best way for a pastor to lead is by example. By example, it's the best way. I think a pastor ought never ask anybody to do something that he would not himself be willing to do. And uh, it's part of the reason I think it's good for a pastor, especially if his age and health allows him to, to be involved in things as much as he possibly can. Not necessarily to come in and run everything, but to come in and be a part of everything. Uh, a lot of times, me and my wife will come to youth events. We, my wife used to come with me a lot more before we had a little man. Sometimes she's not able, but I, I'm at just about every youth activity. It's not because Brother Kerry can't handle it without me. <laughs> he's a grown man. He's older than me, believe it or not. You know, I know I look way older than him, but, but he's older than me. He knows what he's doing. He's a grown man. He's got a family. He's, he's responsible. He could do those things. I don't show up because I have to show up, and I don't show up because he needs me to show up. I show up because I want to help. And I want to be a part of it. And there's oftentimes, in fact, the last time I preached a youth activity, I can't even hardly remember. He usually preaches them, takes care of You say, what do you do, preacher, when you show up? Well, empty trash or help serve food or whatever it might be. I don't say that to puff myself up. I don't say that to brag on myself by any stretch of the imagination. I say that to say this, that I think that one of the greatest ways that I can pastor Wall Ridge Baptist Church is by example. By being willing to do those things along with the people, and sometimes even when others won't being willing to do those things. And I, I feel a great responsibility upon my shoulders, not to lord, but to lead and to do so by example. Notice their spiritual majesty in verse number 4. He says this, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, I ain't going to say a lot about this, because like I said, there's not a lot of pastors in this room, but... Uh, let me just say this, that one of these days, anything that we do, whether we're teaching a Sunday school class, whether we're pastoring a church, whether we're changing the trash, whatever it might be, none of it goes unnoticed. God sees and notices every bit of it, and he will reward accordingly. He is paying attention to these things, and he's watching. Notice the next few verses. We see some rules for shepherds. We see some rules for sheep. He says this, that humility is required in verse number 5. Likewise, ye younger... Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now, I do believe in this particular context that the terms younger and elder are uh, chronological, age-determined terms. Uh, you say, well, why would that be different than how Peter used them in the first verse? Because it's evident he's speaking about an office in the first two verses. But it's evident here there's no office of the younger in the church. Amen. <laughs> Uh, but some of us wouldn't, wouldn't categorize, wouldn't qualify anyway. But, uh, you know, there, there's no office of the younger in, in a church. But what he is saying is this, very simply, that, that older folks ought to be revered in a church, they ought to be respected in a church, that younger folks, and, and I believe we need to make a big deal out of young people, don't you? But not at the expense of the older folks in the church. It's something I see all the time, and it breaks my heart, man, in this mad rush for church growth. Most older folks get left out in the rain in churches nowadays. I could give you a thousand examples of churches, and there's one prominently in my mind right now 
where uh, a couple came to me and uh, they they'd been going to church. They'd been there going there for decades, decades, decades. And they came to me and they said, "Preacher, you know, we're, we're our church has uh, you know our church has shut down for a little while." And I said, "Well, what do you mean your church is shut down?" They said, "Well, we'll get to that in a second. They said, but but you know we, we're trying to find a church to go to in the time being, and they they were going to a little Methodist church down the street, and they said, you know, you believe God would be upset at us if we went to this little Methodist church? They said, it's King James, and it's, you know, old-timey and everything. And I said, well, before I answer that question, I want you to answer me, why is your church shut down? They said, oh, well, you know, it's no big deal, but we just, you know, we went and we got a new pastor, and he's a young man, and, you know, came out, I think, Carson Newman or something, and and uh, he came in, and, and he pastored for a little while, and then he told us it was just too much to handle, that he couldn't do it on his own. I said, how many people goes to your church? They said, about 30. <laughs> I thought, man, if you can't handle pastoring 30 people, you don't need to be pastoring. Amen? I, I mean, if you're pastoring 30 people, you ought to be able to be there when they have an ingrown toenail cut out. Amen? And 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 hold the light for the doctor. I mean, 30 people, you know, is nothing. And that's a great church. I'm not being uh, disparaging when I say that, but that's just there's no reason a young man should not be able to pastor that many. And I said, well, what do you, what do you mean it's shut down? He said, well said, the, the pastors decided the best thing to do was to shut down for three months, remodel the church, and change the name of the church. I said, well, that's sort of strange. They said, yeah. I said, What's, what, what are they changing it to? I can't remember what he said. It was some kind of nonsense. You know, churches don't sound like churches anymore, you know. And uh, they said, do you mind if we go to this Methodist church? Do you think uh, that, that the Lord would mind? I said, well... I said, you know, I don't think the Lord would really mind. I said, as long as you know what you believe and everything. I said, but here's the main problem. I said, by the time your church opens back up, you're going to feel way more at home at that little Methodist church than you're going to feel at your church that you've been at for 30, 40 years. And they did. I, I told him, I said, what he's getting ready to do is he's going to open that church back up and he's going to say it's a satellite church. And they, they their eyes got, they said, yeah, satellite church, satellite church said, yep, what that means is your church doesn't exist. Now you're just an arm of one of these big outfits. And you see that happen time and time and time and time again. One of the great tragedies is a lot of young preachers, they see the old people as the money, and they see the young people as the life and the future and, and the numbers in the church. And, and a lot of times all they want to do is ride those old folks for every penny they can get out of them. Let me tell you, that's an unsustainable model. You know why? This is just very simple, and it may sound carnal to say, but young people don't make no money. Amen? <laughs> one of these days that thing's going to implode. And uh, I think it's a great tragedy. A lot of times older people are put on the back burners in the church. I don't believe that's scriptural. I, I understand we need to have a focus on young people. We need to have something for them. But I don't believe we should cast aside the older people in the church. And listen, I'm not pandering to an older crowd. We we spend, you know, part of that big mu budget that we spend on food, we spend on our seniors ministry every Friday morning. One of the greatest ministries that we have going around here. Uh, you could count on one hand the number of churches in town that have a seniors ministry. We believe it's important. We believe it's important because we believe older folks are important to God. We believe that so oftentimes they're left aside, they're forgotten about. And I don't believe that's scriptural. Peter says that the younger, they ought to submit themselves unto the elder. And they ought to show reverence. They ought to show respect. They shouldn't be treated as as uh, just olden in the way and waiting for them to get gone so that they can push things more to the left than they've already pushed them. But then he says this, that humility is required. How do we do that? He says that we are to be humble. We are to clothe ourselves with humility. In other words, that ought to be, if we want an attitude, our attitude ought to be humility. That's how we need to treat people and address people 
and approach people is through humility, not preferring ourselves, but preferring one another. He says, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. And then he notes that humility is reasonable. He says this, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. In other words, it benefits us to be humble. It pleases God for us to act in humility. Uh, sometimes folks wonder or they worry that if I'm if I'm too humble, folks take advantage of me. No, you don't have to worry about that because God pays attention. God watches. God sees what's taking place. And God will give grace to those that act in humility one to another. Now, I've known lots of folks that pride were their downfall. You ever met anybody like that? Is everybody all right? Everybody awake? All right. Just making sure. Got real silent. I thought I was alone in here for a second. If we, if we had a blind person, they'd say, I wonder where everybody went. <laughs> no, the, I, I've known lots of folks that pride was their downfall. But I've never known anybody that humility was their downfall. You ever met anyone that they said about that person, said, well, they was doing all right when they was full of themselves, but the minute that they got a little humility, everything went downhill. I've never heard anybody say that. Humility is a reasonable thing. God honors it. God is pleased with it. He says this, that humility is rewarded. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. There's two things I think worth saying about that. One, I want you to notice that the person we're humbling ourselves under is, we may be humble to one another, but we're humbling ourselves under God's hand. And it's a mighty hand. The end of the day, we're not trusting that other people are going to do us right. We're trusting that God's going to do us right. We're not trusting that other people are going to appreciate our humility. We're trusting that God is going to appreciate our humility. And then notice the second thing. He says, that he may exalt you in due time. That he may exalt you in due time. It's interesting. It reminds me of the uh, parable that our Lord told about the fellow that went to the supper. And uh, when he went to this supper, you know, they'd all have different couches around the room and and there'd be certain seats that were kind of more sought after and everything and be closer to the head of the table. And this fellow goes into this meal, and he sees the best seat in the house. He's shown up about 15 minutes early. Nobody sees the best seat in the house, and he goes and he sits in that seat. Well, folks start to funnel in. The seats start to fill up. Pretty soon there's no seats left. And then an eminent and important person walks in, and now there's trouble, <laughs> Because the, the master of that house goes to this person and says, you know, I appreciate that you're here, but this seat is reserved for this eminent gentleman. You're going to have to get up. You're going to have to move elsewhere. And shamefacedly, he asked to get up and leave because it wasn't his seat in the first place. And the truth that the Lord was trying to teach is that it is a lot better to begin with humility and be exalted than it is to begin in arrogance and be abased. And I think it's worth noting that there is a true value to our Christian walk. And it'd be far better to underguess that value and have the true value of it exalted and, and, and glorified at the judgment seat of Christ than it would be to strut around like we're the best thing to ever happen to the New Testament church, only to stand shamefaced at the judgment seat of Christ when it's revealed that we weren't what people thought that we were. That's a simple thing that he's trying to teach. That he may exalt you in due time. There's going to come a day that we're going to give an account. 
And if we will act and behave and live in humility, then that day will be a day of exaltation for us. But if we walk around in pride and arrogance and, and proclaim to the world that we're some kind of Christian that we're not, then it's going to be a day of humiliation and abasement for us. When we walk in humility, we might put it this way, we'll lower ourselves, there's nowhere to go but up. Amen? But if we exalt ourselves, there's nowhere to go but down. He denotes the rules for sheep, and he's talked about the way we relate to one another. But he changes his tone in the next few verses. We see a word about shepherding. Look at the next three verses. We see a word about Satan. He says in verse number 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, Peter had dealt with Satan before. He can speak out of experience. You remember the Lord had told him the night that he was uh, arrested, he told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Of course, Peter did not listen to that warning. And because he did not listen to that warning, he was sifted as wheat. He denied the Lord, and the Lord had to restore him in grace and in mercy, and certainly the Lord did that. But no doubt this was present in Peter's mind as he begins to close this little book out. Before he ever puts his pen down, he wants to say a word about the enemy that we have. Let me say, we do have an adversary. I'm thankful we also have an advocate. But we also need to remember we do have an adversary. And he speaks about watching for the roaring lion. We ought to be vigilant and to be sober. Those are the requirements. What does it mean to be sober and to be vigilant? I used to tell the illustration like Otis. Maybe it's carnal, but I don't care. Everybody watches Andy Griffith. And if the worst thing you watch is Andy Griffith, God bless you. Amen. But, uh, you know, Otis on Andy Griffith, he'd walk around stumbling around drunk all the time, and, you know, he'd always see in double and pink elephants and all that stuff. That's a man that's not sober. Literally, to be sober means to be not drunk in the strictest sense, but what it, what it means more than anything is to be aware, to be of a right mind, to be clear-headed about things. And Peter says, I want you to be clear-headed about this adversary that we have. I want you to recognize that you do have an enemy. And he is out to get you. Uh, there's no question. I remember standing around with some folks one day after church, and and we were uh, we, we were there had been some things, some hiccups, some little problems, trouble, and everything. And I was standing around with these folks, and I remember this lady. She's gone home to be with the Lord now, uh, but she was precious. And some of y'all would know her if I said who she was. But we were standing around talking, and and she she said to me, "You'd almost have to to know her to know how almost precious this was when she said it." But she looked at me and she said, "Toby." I ain't going to be pastored by no dictator. <laughs> and uh, everybody was up in our, and that, that didn't, by the way, that didn't come from her. That had come from someone else. You know, when somebody says something that out of character and knowing her, it was very out of character. That didn't come from her. She's parroting something somebody else had said. And there was a group of us standing around. We were talking about some, some problems. And I said, you know, there's something we need to remember. I'm not your enemy. And you're not my enemy. And the other people that are involved in this, they're, they're not our enemy. We have an enemy, and that enemy is Satan. He is the enemy. He is the adversary. And certainly there's times that people do the bidding of Satan, but at the end of the day, we have one singular 
enemy and any other auxiliary enemies that, that we may have are present because of his affliction and his persecution in our life. He is the enemy. We need to always keep that in mind. We have squabbles with folks that we love that are part of our church. Man, they're not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. He's the only one benefiting from it. You know, when you have drama and conflict and discord with, with brethren, sometimes we get this us versus them mentality. But that fighting isn't benefiting them any more than it's benefiting you. There's only one person sitting back and laughing about what's going on, and that's Satan. Be sober about this thing. In other words, it's kind of like he's saying, grow up about it. Grow up. Pay attention. Be clear-minded about this thing because we have an adversary. And then he denotes not only to be sober, but to be vigilant. Now, what does that mean, to be watchful? Be watchful. Uh, it describes the watcher on the wall that was set upon the walls of a city, and his only and singular task was to stare at the horizon and wait for some figure to come up over the horizon. And it might be good news, it might be bad news, but his job was to know what was going on. To Could we put it this way? His job was to see it coming. That's what his job was. His job was to see it coming. And so Peter says to us that we need to be sober, we need to be aware that we have an enemy, but we need to be watchful when things arise, when things happen. We need to see it coming. We need to identify and recognize who our enemy is, and we need to label and define and denote that it is him and not one another. We need to see who our enemy truly is. He gives the requirements, but he gives the reason. Uh, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He denotes because the enemy is powerful. Now, Satan is to be feared or at least respected as an enemy. Let me say that. He is to be feared and respected. It is foolish to treat it as though Satan has no power because he's immensely powerful. We need to acknowledge that. Part of the reason the church is flailing about in spiritual warfare is because they don't appreciate the power that Satan has. And so they allow him entrance into their church because they don't see him for who and what he is. He comes, he appears as an angel of light. That's what Paul said. He appears as an angel of light. But we need to be, we need to respect him in that sense. I, I've been studying, the Lord may let me preach on it, been studying about when Hezekiah, there's a group of ambassadors from Babylon that come to Hezekiah after Hezekiah recovers from being sick. And they come in and they've got a letter and they've heard that Hezekiah's been sick and so they've come in to, to, to talk to him and, and uh, wish him well and everything. And Hezekiah says, hey, let me show you something while, while you're here. And he takes him through all the treasures of his house and shows them everything that he has. When those men leave, Isaiah the prophet comes up to Hezekiah and he says, who were those men? What did they want? And Hezekiah says, well, they were emissaries from, from Babylon, ambassadors, and they came to wish me well and to see everything. They had heard what God had done. Isaiah said, what did they see? And Hezekiah says, well, they saw everything. I, I, I walked them all through the house. I showed them all my treasures and spices and precious ointments and my armor. I showed them everything. And all of a sudden, with a steel gaze, Isaiah looks at him and says, the word of the Lord is spoken to you, Hezekiah, and one of these days they're going to come in, they're going to take away everything that you've shown them. They're going to take all your treasures, they're going to take all of your spices and ointment, they're going to take all of your armor, they're going to, they're going to take your children, lead them away uh, to be, to be eunuchs in the land of Babylon, they're going to take everything away from you. Because you've opened and you've exposed yourself to them. Hezekiah's answer was, well, it's good it ain't going to happen in my time. And you know, that's how the church kind of acts towards Satan. Well, you know, hopefully it won't happen in my time. But we expose ourselves to Satan. 
And we treat it like it's a small thing. Well, sure enough, God's word came true, as it always does. And everything that Hezekiah had was carried away captive into Babylon. Why? Because he let the enemy in. The enemy came to his doors and smiled and had a gift and had a letter and played nice and played kind. And so Hezekiah underestimated the danger of the enemy and let him into his house and into his home and into his world. And when that happened, all of a sudden his fate was sealed. We need to respect the enemy. We need to acknowledge and appreciate his power and realize that he is capable of wreaking havoc in our life. Even if we're saved by the grace of God, blood washed and dwelt by the Holy Ghost, we can still give him an advantage in our life and he can still wreak havoc because the enemy is powerful. But he says because the enemy is prowling, he says this, walketh about as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's testing our life. Testing our life. Imagine, if you will, uh, some folks, or you could even imagine an animal, I'm sure. But uh, imagine, if you will, some thieves walking, pacing up and down in front of a fence and testing for weak spots where they might be able to get in and to wreak havoc. And that's the picture that's given to us. He's walking up and down the fences in our life, the hedge of protection that God has placed about us. He's walking up and down it, looking for any gap in the wall that he can get his nose through why it's so important that we don't give him any place, any opportunity. So important. Why? You say, well, preacher, it wasn't a big deal. I wonder how many things that weren't big deals led to the downfall of Christian families. You know, how many times that music that wasn't a big deal or movies that wasn't a big deal or, or, or clothing that wasn't a big deal or, or sometimes an attitude that wasn't a big deal or a friend that wasn't a big deal has led to the downfall of a Christian family. Because they didn't realize it, but Satan was pacing back and forth around their family, trying to find some way of entrance into their life. He denotes because the enemy is prowling. He speaks of watching for the roaring lion. He speaks of warring with the roaring lion. In verse number 9, he says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith. And he speaks of an unyielding resistance that must take place. Let me say this. The devil never takes time off. He never takes time off. You see, you and me, we may have days that we wake up and don't feel like being a Christian, but the devil never has a day he wakes up and don't feel like being the devil. He never has a time when he says, well, I guess I'll just go easy on him today. That never happens. And so it is of vital importance that we stay always vigilant and ready. We resist him. And how do we do that? Steadfast in the faith. Stable and steadfast and planted in the faith. It describes, you know, that's actually, that, that when it describes that, it's a military word. That's steadfast. Whom resists? Steadfast in the faith. And uh, they say that it, it spoke of uh, the Roman legions that would line up shoulder to shoulder and would lock their octagonal shields together to form an impenetrable wall that could not be walked through. And that's what he describes. He describes us as believers having a unified front against Satan. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Notice the next phrase. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Lining up shoulder to shoulder against Satan. If there's any failure in the New Testament church, and there's a lot of failures, but one of the greatest failures is we don't support each other enough in the warfare that we're engaged in. And part of that is because we're too prideful to admit when we're struggling. Part of it is because we're too prideful to admit when we've made a mistake. Let me tell you something. We need to get over the pride and we need to be willing to go to one another and say, pray for me. I'm having a rough time. Pray for me. I'm struggling with some things. I'm battling with some things. 
We'd be amazed if we just locked shields. Because <laughs> after all, it's the shield of faith. Lock shields. And if we'd stand unified against Satan, realizing that other folks are going through things just like we're going through things. Let me tell you something. There, I may be able to give you a hand up, and there may come a day when you've got to give me a hand up. Satan's after you just like he's after me. And so many times we come in and we're having a bad day. Isn't it funny how only one person has a bad day at a time? That's how we think, right? We think that because we're having a bad day, everybody else ought to just pander to our bad day that we're going through. Has it ever dawned on you that somebody else might be having a bad day on the same day you're having a bad day? The same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. They're going through the same things. Now, we can either pull away from each other and say, well, you tend to yours and I'll tend to mine, or we can get up close to each other and say, let me bear your burdens and you bear my burdens and let us be steadfast in the faith with each other. He speaks of warring against the lion, but he speaks of winning over the lion. Not, not, not winning him over, but winning over the lion. And he speaks about three things, and I'll hurry through them, but he, sees, he speaks about God and his grace. He says, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after, excuse me, that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He speaks first off that God is a God of grace. God does give grace when we are in the midst of heartache. and God gives grace all the time. But he particularly gives grace when we are engaged in spiritual warfare. He particularly. What is the one thing that a good commander will do? When he sees one regiment, one platoon is, is weak and is, is failing and falling in the fight, what does he do? He'll call for assistance. Come over and to help them to hold a line and to keep territory. And God's no different. When he sees us struggling, if we'll come unto him, he'll give us the grace that we need to stand in the midst of these battles. He speaks of God and his grace. He speaks of God and his goal. He says this, God is trying to do something. After ye have suffered a while, (coughs) make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now let's just go through those very quickly. Make you perfect. He's trying to mature you. He uses suffering to to mature you, to perfect you, to complete you. In other words, there's probably some things in your life that shouldn't be there that are there and some things that should be there that aren't there. And through suffering, God is adding things to your life, life that are needful and He is removing things that are harmful. He says, establish you. What does that mean? He's trying to make you stable. Make you stable. You've heard before about fair weather and foul weather Christians. There are some Christians that part of the reason they live on a roller coaster in their life is because when things get bad, uh, they're at church, but when things get good, they're in the wind. So what does God do with those people? Well, sometimes He only gives them bad times so that it will establish them, keep them stable, keep them close uh, to His throne. He says, establish, strengthen you. Suffering strengthens us. It may not feel like it at the time, but it is strengthening us. Uh, if you go, I, I I decided I was going to start working out. I've not been real diligent with it because, you know, if I was disciplined, I wouldn't be this fat in the first place. Somebody say amen to that, you know. But uh, we got we got one of them ellipticals at the house, you know, that you, you do one of these numbers on, or I guess it's like that. And uh, and I, I looked at that thing, and I thought, man, that ain't going to be nothing. That ain't going to be nothing. And I got that thing. Let me tell you something. If I was lost in the desert, I'd just have to die there. That's the truth. I did about three and, and a quarter mile on it. Three and a quarter mile. 
and I just melted into a puddle on the floor and laid there till I had enough strength to drag myself up the steps and into bed. And, buddy, I didn't feel like I was stronger. My body was aching. My legs were burning. Sweat was pouring. That strain on my body sure didn't feel like it was strengthening me. But you know what I found? The next time I got on, it was a little easier. And the next time, it was a little easier. And the next time, it was a little easier. All the while, my body is screaming, Stop! (laughs) But it's being strengthened, and it's being strengthened. And suffering does the same thing in our lives. And then he speaks of God and his glory. Well, let's look at that last one. He says this, Settle you. Settle you. Settle you. What is he doing? Sometimes he is bringing us to a place of constant position at his feet. Constant position. He's trying to settle us. No more high and low extreme, just settled at his throne. And then he speaks of God and his glory. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is a chief primary superlative thing that God is doing above anything else. You know what God is doing? God is bringing glory to himself. That is the chief thing that God is doing in every interaction with humanity, in every interaction uh, with the spiritual world, through, with time and eternity. God is bringing glory unto himself. And it may not seem like it right now, but God is most certainly bringing glory through the suffering that we may endure. And notice finally, and we'll just uh, go through this quickly, the conclusion. He gives the next few verses. Look at verse number 12. It gives word of exhortation. He says, by Silvanus, and we believe that's probably Silas. We don't know that for sure, but we believe that's probably Silas, his colleague that he mentions. Silas, uh, or by Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose. When he says, as I suppose, he's not saying, well, I guess he is. What he's saying is, I have reckoned it. I have calculated it to be so. I'm sending this by the hand of someone that is trustworthy and that is faithful. He says, I have written, let me turn my Schofield page, Briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Notice his comment about the brevity of his, of his epistle. He says that he's written this little short letter. It's not very long in the, in the canon of scripture. But he denotes the, the purpose, the burden of it. He wants them to understand that this grace, that the life that they are living, this is the true grace of God. And they should stand in this grace. Uh, Listen, I'm thankful to know I'm not going to have to change religions every six months because when God saved me, I found the right thing. Found the right thing. And I don't need to waver. I don't need to to falter one way or the other because (coughs) I know that this is the true grace of God and I can stand in it faithfully. He gives a word of explanation in verse 13. He gives greetings from a specific church and from a specific Christian. He says the church that is at Babylon Elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. I, you know, I was thinking today, what what would it be like if we found out that Peter really did have a son? I guess that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? That's probably not what he's saying. He's probably speaking about John Mark. Uh, when you read John Mark's gospel, um, the gospel of Mark, it has certain uh, details that only Peter could have known. Mark couldn't have even known them. So Peter must have related those narrative truths and that chronology to Mark. So probably the Mark he's speaking about is John Mark. Boy, that's encouraging. It's encouraging for this reason. Uh, John Mark uh, w- was a throwaway Christian. I mean, most churches would have thrown him away. He was a quitter. He had messed up. He had went home. He had quit on God. But here at the end of his life, and at the end of Peter's life, where do we find him? We find him faithfully serving God. I'm glad God don't throw us away. Amen? And then we see a word of expectation. Verse number 14, he says, Greet you one another with a kiss of charity. 
And uh, we've sort of joked, you know, that's not a common practice. It was then, but now it's not a common practice. And uh, I heard one preacher said, you know, what the difference, you know, between a, a holy kiss and a regular kiss is, a uh, holy kiss and a carnal kiss, about three seconds. Amen? <laughs> that's the difference. We don't do that nowadays, but uh, probably in today's church, in the Western world, a warm handshake would be equivalent to that kiss of charity. What he's saying is you ought to exhibit kindness towards one another. But then finally, and I'll say this, notice how he ends this this book. This has been a book about suffering. This has been a book about submission. This has been a hard book. I mean, you read the book of Ruth. I mean, you just you want to shout about everything, right? You you listen. You you read the book of Colossians. You want to shout about everything. The book of First Peter is a hard book. It deals with hard truths. And so, what is the spirit with which we receive this book? He says this: Peace be with you. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peace be with you all. This book can be received in peace. It will engender peace. It will produce peace in our lives. And guess what? For the hard truths that are contained in it, when when they get hard, and they do, sometimes it's hard to submit. Sometimes it's hard to suffer. In those times, we can look to the God of all peace. and He'll give us the peace that we need.